Hello, lovely listeners. Just a quick note before you begin this podcast episode. The sound quality isn't quite up to our standards. I hope you'll bear with us and we'll be back on track for the subsequent episodes. Thank you very much and enjoy. Hi, I'm Sahel Janisari, a migration and mental health researcher. I'm very excited to introduce you to the Qualitative Open Mic podcast hosted by myself and the Qualitative Applied Health Research Center. This series is on ethical practices in qualitative health research, particularly with marginalized groups. In each episode, we'll ask what are the best and most positive ethical practices that you can think of and that we can learn from. This episode, we're very lucky to have with us Latifah we are going to talk about how to become an ethical researcher, the skills, the morals, and the relationships you need to do more ethical research. So, Latifa, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Suhail. So, I'm very pleased to, to be with you today um, and to speak about something that I really love speaking about. Um, so, my name is Latifa Narimangema. Um, I am an activist and a researcher and my focus is on uh, forced migration, gender, um, and migration in general. Yeah, so at the moment I work, uh, I am conducting research for Coventry University uh, on how youth uh, in Algeria uh, look at their future and how they can create sustainable development in Algeria. But I'm also working as integration officer with uh, resettled uh, refugees in the borough of Lewisham. Ethics is part of my life. It has to. It has to be part of my life in everyday work. More as integration officer than as a researcher. I have to be honest, because uh, integration means uh, giving them the information where to get English classes, where to get housing advice, where to get immigration advice. But also, it's also about uh, creating that trust for them to explain their pain. And what I found in my work is that and talking about their mental health is strongly related with the trust they have in you and building that trust has ethical consideration. Thank you, Latif. Sorry, Latif. I just wanted to um, pick up on some of what you said and maybe go into a bit more detail. So you kind of mentioned that um, ethics was about having morals. Being an ethic- ethical health researcher is about um, morality. So could you explain a bit more about that? Mor- morality, what I would say, is about the code to respect when you're looking at people's behaviour. As a researcher, we have that responsibility to make ourselves aware of the minimum moral standards required. The code of ethics and the moral values, which are taken to lie behind it, define what the profession is all about, which is the whether integration officer, supporting or academic or researcher. If we look at how our life is regulated, how our behaviors are socially constructed. Uh, we can look at a way of for us getting the knowledge uh, as uh, social researchers. We need to be fully aware not to be harming the public good, not to be harming 
the, the people we are working with and not to be harming ourselves, our profession. Yeah, well, I was just kind of curious to see, okay, you know, do no harm is a key sort of ethical principle that researchers are taught to adhere to. But what are the virtues and values that researchers have to develop and embody to achieve that? So, you know, things like, is it something about empathy or fairness or forgiveness or generosity or gratitude or humility? What are the character qualities that people need? Yes, definitely. If you're researching vulnerable people or marginalized people, the first character you need to have is empathy. Because when you have empathy, you're definitely not going to harm the person. Uh, you need to have an, an extremely uh, important and deep uh, listening skills. You don't speak. You just listen. Because the more you listen, the more that person feels that you're really listening, the more they will tell you. You're not doing it because you're going to be called a doctor and be a PhD. If they feel that, you, if if he or she feels that he is telling you, so all that pain he is in, for you to write a research proposal or to write a research paper only, then you will lose that first. So empathy and listening skills are two very good uh, skills you need to have. The other one is how to engage. They need to have that. They need to work on themselves and reflect on their own way of stigmatizing, whether it's gender or religion or, as I said, because the person you are researching will feel that. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. So I think a lot of what you're talking about sounded like relationships with a participant were at the heart of ethics. So could you tell me a bit more about how you have developed relationships with your participants in your work and how that has supported hopefully your your research ethics yes uh i was researching highly skilled uh algerian women who fled uh, during that uh, conflict of the 90s in algeria in that part that side of my research the algerian government and the president was trying to uh make people sign in for what they call the amnesty law uh, forgiving, forgetting, uh, or what happened. In the other side, what we call now the diaspora side, I mean, the people were outside Algeria, that was not accepted because most of the, re- the women I've researched wanted the truth. What happened? We can't, we can't just forgive without the truth. I mean, it's a long, uh, long process. However, because there was this reticence of, uh, not uh, accepting this amnesty law, uh, a law was made in Algeria. For anyone to write or to research the 90s would be a fine, good amount and prison. So this made people reticent first to speak about. Some people didn't want to be not allowed to go to Algeria or, so I was, I hardly explained that my research first, I w- it would be strongly anonymous. I will change uh, names. I will change uh, cities. I will, I will never give the name of the city or I will never give um, the name of, however, because I was my, I was targeted as uh, the target was highly skilled and highly professional women. Some of the stories, well, even if you change the name, even if you change the places, the, the woman will be recognized. So I said, let's, let's change this. 
and uh, make it quantitative and use a methodology to just uh, actually identify where are these women, uh, where they have fled from Algeria, which country, which... Uh, so I've done the survey and I was, I used the method to actually identify them. And then on a survey, at the end of my, my survey, I said, this is my email address. If you want to tell me more about your experience, please contact me. I was not expecting anyone to contact me and I was with no qualitative data for about eight months or 10 months. And then I started receiving emails. Uh, so, and then I set up the interviews. Most of them happened on Zoom. Uh, sorry, there was no Zoom at the time. It was Skype. The issue I, I, I met, I mean, the obstacles were first, uh, I was doing this research in the UK. Uh, I mean, women were not like quite open to this. I had to explain why and so I was part of them, but why I was doing this. So I was explaining that we need to to uh, to share our experience. Why we did not have international protection. Why the asylum process failed gender-based violence. And then women were very sensitive to this, but not talking too much about the experience of uh, in Algeria. And then uh, there was another one who I've only met on Facebook. So I emailed her, I told her uh, uh, to know more about Algeria. That was all. Uh, so after six meetings with this woman, she was, yeah, yeah, I would love to, yeah, yeah I will call you when I'm, I'm ready. It took about six months and then one day, randomly, she called me. And this woman, this particular woman, uh, became the core case study of my PhD. Because it turned from an interview, from just uh, like uh, like all what we do, like in-depth, uh, uh, non-structured interview. So I went with a few questions and uh, she told me everything. It, it was hard for her to just to stop that interview. My conclusion is that you definitely need to take in consideration a lot of a lot of factors. Where we are, who's funding you, which university uh, you are uh, doing your PhD, or which place? Why are you in the UK, where very few women went to? I had to take all this in consideration uh, before I. And I'm very proud of myself that I have interviewed fifteen women. And 180 women responded to my uh, to my uh, survey, which is, was a, a kind of uh, good questions and good like uh, in depth questions for the survey. Different experience with one woman. I I got in touch with. I make an appointment with. I took my ticket, and so I called her uh, when I arrived. So yeah, yeah, I'm still waiting for you tomorrow, ten o'clock. And uh, she was speaking to me. She started telling me all her experience. And I was saying, uh, okay, excuse me, madam, but we need to sign the consent form so I can use this interview. And she did not, she did not sign. So I told her, when she was telling me the story, I was not recording. Uh, and because I didn't have the, the, the consent form. Uh, so she kept me about six hours while I only had like four days to spend in Paris. Uh, at the end, she did not sign any uh, consent form. But two weeks later, she started sending me emails with all like uh, why she, what happened to her in Algeria. In fact, she started telling me all her story from 1962. And then with my supervisor, 
we decided to to use some of those uh, emails and some of what she was telling me because sending an email was a kind of consent. Uh, and maybe you, during those two weeks, she was just trying to research who I was, but the trust came and then she even sent me some, uh, some chocolate from France uh, later on. I went back to speak to her, turning my PhD into a book, uh, but then uh, she died recently. There is this ethic of, because they, they, some people may say, oh no, I did not say that after when you publish and those two women are not there and not here anymore and i i will try my best to respect all what they have told me to respect their memory to if i'm asked questions about that the specific experience i will do my best to be as accurate and as so this is what ethic is for me ethic is really about your how you re- the respect you pay to the people you are researching and also to respect to their memory. Thanks, Latifa. That That's very much appreciated. So something that really, several things came out from what you said. I found it really interesting that you used a quantitative survey as a basis to sort of introduce yourself and create relationships to lay the groundwork for qualitative research. So I found that really fascinating, something that I would probably not have thought of. Um, but I also felt that you obviously put a lot of time an effort into getting to know the women you interviewed. You said you had six meetings with uh, one of the interviewees before um, you you talked to them about their experiences. So how how does that work? In I'm a researcher, and the projects I do are you know they have lots of deadlines attached to them and limited resources. I'm thinking, do you feel like there's a structural barrier to creating relationships with? Uh, the people you're working with in, as participants in research. So my uh, in uh, I started my PhD in Swansea University, and it was really mainly how to engage uh, highly qualified Algerian women, blah blah, into the project with Algeria. So um, this is why we we said, okay, we don't know where they are, do they exist, or so let's do a method to at least to gather to know how how many. Where are they? So I've started uh, um, using an RDS, which is random sampling. Uh, it's a quite uh, specific method. So the idea was to have six seeds, six women who are highly qualified, left during the 90s, and uh, have some connections with others. So I will I've sent the survey to the six seeds I have identified on Facebook, because I used Facebook mainly at the beginning. And then uh, they had to send that survey to at least three of their peers. And the condition were uh, having fled Algeria during the 90s, being highly qualified. Uh, and uh, the third one was still being linked to Algeria some, somehow. And then six recruited three, and then the other three will recruit another three. And so this is how we reach 180. This worked well for the first two months, and then it was linked with anything that happened in Algeria. It would stop. People would start thinking, oh, who is, who is this researcher sending this uh, survey? 
Uh, it does look like a spy. It does look, because it was at the same time in Algeria, people try, I mean, the government was trying to organize a referendum and, uh, for this amnesty law. And so it was always, my research was always linked to what is going on in Algeria. What happened? So it will stop. And then I will maybe four months without having any response. And then I went back to, to my supervisor saying, I think I need to abandon this because it's not going to work. And then, uh, she would say, no, 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 just leave it and see. Because this method was only used to, um, it was used by an American researcher who was looking at how HIV spread within campus, university campus. So it was a very new and, uh, so my supervisor was really keen on seeing how it works. And I, I even went to Oxford and the uh, Professor Cohen, who is the father of diaspora studies, told me, oh, yeah, just keep, keep going, keep going. Don't worry. Don't worry. It will work. Uh, and we are also in Oxford trying to use this method, quantitative method, but that gives you at least information on how, uh, this group works, uh, and connect with each other. At least you will have, even if you don't have qualitative, at least you will have, uh, uh the way of, I mean, to know they exist and they connect with each other and how and why. And then uh, in the middle of this, my supervisor left Swansea University and I was, uh, it was already very hard. But then when my supervisor left, I was like, I'm not doing it. So, and then I moved myself to London. I started volunteering with refugees and asylum seekers in a good place here in London. I said, I'm not, I don't need to be an academic to help my community. They've just abandoned this. And uh, volunteering with me was Professor Phil Marfle, to whom I say hi <laughs> if he listened to this. Uh, he was volunteering with us as well. And he was the director of the Center for Migration, Refugees and Belonging at EUEL. And then just talking, I told him my story. And he came to me and said, uh, what is the topic? And I told him my topic, and then he said, oh, nobody actually is, re- is re- has written about uh, Algerian women. Uh, send me something. Send me a chapter. Or send me something you wrote. I emailed him something I wrote, a chapter, and he came back to me. He said, oh, we are, I'm going to contact uh, UN. We're going to transfer you there, and you will finish your PhD there. And when I, start, when I went back to UN, and met the supervisor and start talking about what I was doing. She said, you have enough to just write up. Your fieldwork is completed. I started writing. And then at the end of that year, and you really was different from, from Swansea. Every year you go, you present your research to pass. And this is where we're stuck because the ethical form I've signed in Swansea was different from what they were expecting in UL. So for one of the interviews and one of the, the way I conducted the, that email address, that email, UL asked me to go back to their ethical committee and pass it. I found then that, uh, whether it's two different universities or two different way of looking at it, at ethics, but in terms of researching refugees and migrants and women, and uh, I mean, that ethical form I felt for UL was very difficult, was very hard. 
and very uh, culture sensitive and a lot of respect and values for my research anyway. But I just I wanted to pick up about your experiences working in in the charity sector so you mentioned that you ended up volunteering and, and working in the charity sector and that sort of interestingly got you back into academia on your return did you feel that those charity experiences had given you new ethical skills that you then used definitely i i think uh when i uh, working with charity that's why i don't want to leave working with charities even if I have some work with with the, with the academia, I think people using charities or NGOs or we, we call them people providing services and support to vulnerable people, to asylum seekers, and to refugees. They do most of the time do casework. They do casework very often without having that that knowledge uh, about the, the plight of these people. For example, I've heard. An advisor saying, yes, uh, resettled or asylum seeker or refugee, they all have the same trauma. And because you're an academic and because you have that background and that knowledge, you will say, no, an asylum seeker and a resettled and a refugee will have different kind of trauma. Uh, So in general, we think that asylum seekers are more traumatized than others, than refugees, or definitely the resettled are not affected by any trauma. So you will then, because you have this knowledge, yeah, and because you have, you know that anyone that has been forced to leave a country, a community, will be affected by some kind of what we call a PTSD. Yeah, because there's a loss, loss of language is number one. Loss of loss of locus of identity is very important. This in-depth knowledge is missing in the charity sector. But what about the other way around? What did you take from the charity sector in terms of your research ethics? What did the charity sector teach you in terms of how you do your research? It teached me uh, was something I was, uh, yeah, just, just to let you know that I have been in the charity sector before I went to the PhD, yeah? So I was already, I've set up my, uh, Swansea, uh, asylum seeker women's group much before I went for my master and PhD on false migration. So I was kind of coming from that. That experience showed me that what people were telling me and what I felt myself because people were researching my life as an asylum seeker and refugees when I arrived. And I was always uh, not uh, very happy with the way uh, interviews were happening. My my experience was reflected in their work. Uh, so and it was kind of that what pushed me to go and gain more knowledge up to the level of uh, of a PhD. And then I went back and I never actually left the the charity sector, whether as a volunteer or as a as a worker. Now, uh, what I learned from I think is two ways. I learn from the charity sector, but the char- charity sector should also learn from from me as academic working, but it doesn't always, uh, doesn't always, uh, uh, work like that. It's, uh, uh, we haven't, we need to do those. A lot of academics should actually go, um, whether work or what we maybe call a civic engagement or something, because we need that, that, um, relationship is not, is not, is not 
sometimes I feel the relationship is not genuine because the research, the, the people, what I learn is from the people I work with is if you're doing the research, tell them why you're doing this research. This I learned this as ethical. If you don't tell them why you're doing this research, how is it going to improve their life? They, they, they want to engage with you. I've learned this, but I've already known this before. Not harming them is number one of what you need to show. Empathy, I mean, this is something that you, I, I had before. As I said, I never, I've never left the, the charity sector. Whether as, uh, even when I was, the whole time I was doing my PhD, I was still, uh, volunteering and working in the charity sector. So I've learned that if you don't have empathy, and I've also learned that so many research are conducted and not, not, uh, bringing anything to the charity sector. So the relationship between the academia and the charity sector and the refugees and the communities is not, is not there. We need to work hard to create that, uh, three ways of supporting refugees. Thank you, Latifa. And so just coming to the last couple of questions, um, what resources are useful for researchers who are looking to develop their ethical skills and practices? Well, there are uh, a lot of good books. Uh, My Reason in Ethics, I love this book. It's by uh, someone called Stefan Tulmi. It's like my Bible. I, I know it's very old, but it does show you how to respect, how to create that uh, relationship, how to engage, uh, how to develop empathy, how to, and what is that you, what it is that you want from this research? What it is? Are you, what are you looking for? Are you, are you looking for contributing to the body of knowledge? What it is that you're doing this research for? It's really important that you have this, uh, uh, from that book, why? I mean, it was, I read it a long time ago, but I still have it all the time. It's like how to reflect on your own positionality, on your own biases, how to be extremely transparent about your own, your, your own reason why you're doing this research. Yeah, I'm sure there are more, more books on uh, ethics and conviction research blamed on different conceptual framework, which mine is uh, social construction and feminist uh, method and framework. There are many books. I, I, I love it. it. It's a good book. I I, 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 uh, I advise people to, to read it. A, a, any PhD student or anyone who is uh, uh, concerned about ethics should read this book. Thank you. It feels like one of the things which has come out through our conversation is um, about authenticity. You keep, I keep, you keep coming back to genuineness and transparency. And I think there's something about authenticity in researchers that perhaps is an important ethical skill or virtue. I wanted to just um, end by asking you, and we're asking all our guests this because this is something we're considering developing. To what extent do you think ethical guidelines would be useful in helping researchers improve their ethical skills? Are guidelines something that you look at and use, or is it something that you think skills are developed through practice? I think it's something to develop to practice. I go back to my example of uh, having received all those emails. And uh, to be honest, it was a, a, um, a strong intellectual exercise within myself. And then I shared with my supervisor that what, what should I do? What can I, what should I do? 
And then it was also following a conversation with the ethical committee. And then I was like, okay, you can use it. Uh, you can use it because her sending emails means she, the, the constant is there. Yeah. And there's actually a good article on uh, uh, email, uh, yeah, ethics and email. Uh, and then, uh, so I used it, I analyzed the data, I put it outside, and as I told you, I left, uh, abandoned the PhD, went back to another university which has developed different and more stronger, I would say, uh, ethical uh, form. And that emails, that it was... Uh, about using or not using those emails. So I think that when you when you uh, engage in research that is highly sensitive or highly uh, like mine, you need to be prepared. Yes, you have a guideline, but you can develop a guideline. But by continuing respecting the value, the norm, the having empathy, respecting not harming, respecting your fieldwork. You need to have a great respect and empathy toward your fieldwork. And that will uh, help you develop or go a bit outside of your guideline, but still by being rigorous, by uh, reflecting, by, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I replied to your question, but I don't know if I'm clear enough. But yes, you have your guideline. And you. I was saying this to my student. This is the form, three pages. You have to sign this form which include confidentialities and uh, consent and uh, all the, the, the guidelines you have to, uh, explaining uh, your research, making sure they understand, they, are, they agree. But also there are situations in which you have to come back to, to us as a as an ethical committee um, created to, to support the course, and we can discuss aspect of your research or situation in your research that you will have to maybe go outside of this but by continuing to respect the person you're researching to respect your research the the good of the the whole community you are researching and not harming anyone thank you very much for that yeah so again so what i took is the respect is a key the value and virtue of being an ethical researcher and sometimes things don't quite go as plans, but if you keep to that value, then you should be able to do ethical research, even if it's not exactly as you had anticipated. Uh, and I think that's a really, really nice point to to end on. So I am very grateful, Latifa, for your time, and um, hopefully our listeners are too. And so next episode we are going to talk a bit about sharing ethical knowledge and how one way of going past some of our ethical dilemmas is to talk about them with other researchers or relevant communities so we'll be talking to tanya mckay from the big pain foundation so please join us for that and see you soon